Section 20 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. Edited by Charles Dudley Warner. Section 20. Gustave Droz, 1832-1895. Gustave Droz enjoyed for a time the distinction of being the most popular writer of light literature in France, and his fame extended throughout Europe and to America, several of his books having been translated into English essentially a Parisian of the day, gay, droll, adroit, he not only caught and reflected the humor of his countrymen, but with a new, fresh touch, reached below the surface of their volatile emotions. Occasionally striking the note of deeper feeling, he avoided, as a rule, the more serious sides of life, as well as the sensational tendencies of most of his contemporaries, his friends claimed for him a distinctive genre, and on that account presented him as a candidate for the Academy, but he failed of election. The son of a well-known sculptor, he was born in Paris and followed the traditions of his family in entering the École des Beaux-Arts, where he developed some aptitude with his brush but a preference for writing beguiled him from the studio, and an acquaintance with Marcelin, the illustrator, founder of La Vie Parisienne, led him to follow literature. At first he was timid, dreading the test of publication, but presently he gave himself up unreservedly to his pen. Within a year he was established as a favorite of the people, and his friend's journal was on the highway to success. For this he wrote a series of sketches of everyday life that were subsequently collected and published in book form under the titles Monsieur, Madame et Bébé, Entre nous, and La Carrière Bleue de Mademoiselle Cibot. Within two years these books had reached their twentieth edition, and of the first, nearly 150 editions have been demanded since it was issued. He has written several novels, the best known of which are Babylon, Les Etangs, The Ponds, and Autour d'une Source, Around a Spring, but they did not fully sustain the reputation gained by his short sketches, a fact which induced him in 1884 to return to his earlier form in Tristesse et Sourire, Sorrows and Smiles, a volume of light dissertations on things grave and gay that at once revived his popularity. The peculiarity of the work of Gustave Droz is its delicacy both in humor and pathos. He surprised the French by making them all laugh without making any of them wince. The sharp wits of his day were forgotten in the unalloyed enjoyment of his simple quaintness, in which there was neither affectation nor sarcasm. 
yet as has been said he was a parisian of the parisians quick to perceive the ludicrous ready to weep with the afflicted and to laugh again with the happy his studies of children are among his best on account of their extreme naturalness and are never uninteresting despite the simplicity of the incidents and observations on which they are founded in le carrier bleu de mademoiselle cibot he has used striking colors to paint the petty afflictions that beset most lives but lest these pictures should leave an unpleasant impression they are set off by others of a happier sort making a collection that constitutes a most effective lesson in practical philosophy selection how the baby was saved from the seamstress's story by gustave droz yes mademoiselle adele said the seamstress the real happiness of this world is not so unevenly distributed after all louise as she said this took from the reserve in the bosom of her dress a lot of pins and applied them deftly to the trimming of a skirt which i was holding for her a sufficiently comfortable doctrine i answered but it does seem to me as if some people were born to live and to die unhappy it is only folks who never find anybody to love enough and i think it's nobody's fault but their own but my good louise wouldn't you have suffered much less last year when you came so near losing your boy if you hadn't cared so much for him i was only drawing her on you see louise's chat was the greatest resource to me at that time why mademoiselle adele you are surely joking you'd as well tell me to cut off my feet to save my shoes you'll know one of these days and not so far off neither maybe how mighty easy and sensible it would be not to love your children they are a worry too but oh the delight of em i'd like to have had anybody tell me not to love my darling because it might grieve me when he lay there in his mother's lap with blue lips gasping for his breath and well-nigh dead his face blackish and his hands like this piece of wax you could see that everything was going against him and with his great big eyes he was staring in my face until i felt as if the child was tugging at my very heart-strings i kept smiling at him though through the tears that blinded me hard as i tried to hide them oh such tears are bitter salt indeed mademoiselle and there was my poor husband on his knees making paper figures to amuse him and singing a funny song he used to laugh at now and then the corners of his mouth would pucker and his cheeks would wrinkle a little bit under the eyes you could tell he was still amused but in such a dreamy way oh our child seemed no longer with us but behind a veil like wait a minute you must excuse me for i can't help crying when i think of it and the poor creature drew out her handkerchief and fairly sobbed aloud in the midst of it however she smiled and said well that's over now twas nothing and i'm too silly and mademoiselle here i've gone and cried upon your mother's dress and that's a pretty business i took her hand in mine and pressed it 
aren't you afraid you'll stick yourself mademoiselle i've got my needle in that hand she said playfully but you did not mean what you said just now did you what did i say that it would be better not to love your children with all your heart on account of the great anxiety don't you know such things are wicked when they come into your head your mind wants purifying but i'm sure i beg your pardon for saying so you are entirely right louise i returned ah so i thought and now let me see let's fix this ruche pull it to the left a little please but about the sick boy tell me about his recovery that was a miracle i ought to say two miracles it was a miracle that god restored him to us and a miracle to find anybody with so much knowledge and feeling such talent such a tender heart and so much so much i'm speaking of the doctor a famous one he was too you must know for it was no less than dr Farron. heaven knows how he is run after and how rich and celebrated he is aren't you surprised to hear that it was he who attended our little boy indeed the wonders begin with that you may imagine my husband was at his wit's end when he saw how it was with the child and all of a sudden i saw him jump up get out his best coat and hat and put them on where are you going i asked to bring dr Farron. why if he had said to bring the prime minister it would have seemed as likely don't you believe dr Farron is going to trouble himself about such as we they will turn you out of doors but twas no use talking my dear he was already on the stairs and i heard him running away as if the house was on fire fire indeed worse far worse than any fire and there i was left alone with the child upon my knees he wouldn't stay in bed and was quieter so wrapped up in his little blanket here will he die i thought soon will his eyes close and then it will be all over and i held my own breath to listen to his feeble and oppressed pantings about an hour had passed when i heard a rapid step upon the stairs we are poor and live in attic rooms the door opened and my husband came in wet with perspiration and out of breath if i live a century i'll not forget his look when he said well i answered no worse but the doctor he's coming oh those blessed words it actually seemed as if my child were saved already if you but knew how folks love their little ones i kissed the darling i kissed his father i laughed i cried and i no longer felt the faintest doubt it is by god's mercy that such gleams of hope are sent to strengthen us in our trials it was very foolish too for something might easily have prevented the doctor's coming after all you found him at home then i asked my husband then he told me in an undertone what he had done stopping every now and then to wipe his face and gather breath my husband had scarcely uttered these words continued louise when i heard a step on the stairs it was he it was that blessed angel of a doctor come to help us in our sore distress and what do you think he said in his deep voice when he got into the room 
God bless you, my friends, but I nearly broke my neck on those stairs. Where's that child? Here he is, my dear darling doctor. I knew no better way to speak to him, with his dress cravat showing over his greatcoat, and his decorations dangling like a little bunch of keys at his buttonhole. He took off his wrappings, stooped over the child, turned him over, more gently even than his mother could have done, and laid his own head first against his back, then against his breast. How I tried to read his eyes, but they know how to hide their thoughts. "'We must perform an operation here,' says he, "'and it is high time.' Just at this moment the hospital doctor came in and whispered to him, "'I'm afraid you didn't want to be disturbed, sir.' "'Oh, never mind. I am sorry it wasn't sooner, though. Get everything ready now.' "'But, Mademoiselle Adèle, why should I tell you all this? I'd better mind my work.' "'Oh, go on, Louise, go on.' "'Well, then, mademoiselle, if you believe me, "'those two doctors, neither of them kin or even friends till then, "'went to work and made all the preparations, "'while my husband went off to borrow lights. "'The biggest one tied a mattress on the table, "'and the assistant spread out the bright little knives. "'You, who have not been through it all, mademoiselle, "'can't know what it is to have your own little one in your lap.' to know that those things are to be used upon him to pierce his tender flesh and if the hand that guides them be not sure that they may kill him when all was ready dr farron took off his cravat then lifted my child from my arms and laid him on the mattress in the midst of the lamps and said to my poor man you will hold his head and your wife his feet joseph will pass me the instruments "'You've brought a breathing tube with you, my son?' "'Yes, sir.' "'My husband was as white as a sheet by this, "'and when I saw him about to take his place, "'with his hands shaking so much, it scared me, "'so I said, "'Doctor, please let me hold his head. "'But my poor woman, if you should tremble, "'please let me do it, doctor.' "'Be it so, then,' and then added with a bright look at me "'and a cheering smile.' We shall save him for you, my dear. You are a brave little woman, and you deserve it. Yes, and save him he did. God bless him. Saved him as truly as if he had snatched him from the depths of the river. And you didn't tremble, Louise? You may depend on that. If I had, it would have been the last of my child. How in the world did you keep yourself steady? The Lord knows, but I was like a rock. "'When you must, you must, I suppose. "'And you had to behold every detail of that operation?' "'Yes, indeed, and often have I dreamed it over since. "'His poor little neck laid open, "'and the veins which the doctor pushed aside with his fingers, "'and the little silver tube which he inserted, and all that, "'and then the face of the child, "'changing as the air passed into his lungs.' you've seen a lamp almost out when you pour in oil it was like that they had laid him there but half alive with his eyes all but set and they gave him back to me pale and with bloodless lips it is true but with the life in his looks and breathing breathing the free fresh air kiss him mother says the doctor and put him to bed 
cover the place with some light thing or other. And Joseph must stay with you to-night, won't you, Joseph? Ah, well, that's all arranged. He put on his things and wrapped himself up to go. He was shaking hands with my husband when I seized one hand and kissed it, like a fool as I was, but I didn't stop to think. He laughed heartily and said to my husband, Are you not jealous, friend? Your wife is making great advances to me. But I must be off now. Good night, good people. And from that night he always talks so friendly and familiarly to us, not a bit contemptuously either, but as if he liked us and was glad to be of service to us. Selection A Family New Year's from Monsieur, Madame, and Baby by Gustave Droz. It is barely seven o'clock. A pale ray of wan light filters through the double curtains, and someone is already at the door. In the next room I hear the stifled laughs and silvery voice of my little child, who trembles with impatience and begs to come. "'But, Father, dear,' he cries, "'it's baby, it's your own little boy, to wish you Happy New Year.' "'Come in, darling, come quick, and give me a kiss,' I cry." The door opens, and my boy, with shining eyes and his arms in the air, rushes toward the bed. Long curls, escaping from the nightcap which imprisons his blond head, fall over his forehead. His loose nightshirt, embarrassing his little feet, adds to his impatience and makes him trip at every step. He has crossed the room at last, and stretching his hands towards mine, "'Baby wishes you a happy new year,' he says earnestly. "'Poor darling, with his bare feet. "'Come, dear, come and get warm under the covers. "'Come and hide in the quilt.' "'I draw him to me, but at this movement my wife wakes up suddenly. "'How you frightened me! "'I was dreaming that there was a fire, "'and these voices in the midst of it. "'You are indiscreet with your cries.' Our cries, so you forget, dear mamma, that this is New Year's Day. Baby is waiting for you to wake up, and so am I. I wrap up my little man in the soft quilt. I bury him in the eiderdown and warm his frozen feet with my hands. Mother dear, this is New Year, he cries. He draws our two heads together with his arms and kisses us anywhere at random with his fresh lips. I feel his dimpled hand wandering about my neck. His little fingers are entangled in my beard. My mustache pricks the end of his nose. He bursts out laughing and throws his head back. His mother, who has recovered from her fright, draws him into her arms. She pulls the bell. The year begins well, my dears, she says, but we need a little light. Tell me, Mama, do naughty children have presents at New Year's? says the young dissembler, with an eye on the mountain of boxes and packages visible in the corner, in spite of the gloom. The curtains are drawn apart, the blinds are opened, there is a flood of daylight, the fire crackles gaily on the hearth, and two large packages, carefully wrapped up, are placed on the bed. One is for my wife, the other for the boy. What is it? What will it be? I have heaped up knots, and tripled the wrappings, and I watch with delight their nervous fingers, lost in the strings. 
My wife gets impatient, smiles, is vexed, kisses me, and asks for scissors. Baby on his side bites his lips, pulls with all his might, and at last asks me to help him. He longs to see through the paper. Desire and expectation are painted on his face. The convulsive movement of his hand in the folds of the quilt rustles the silk, and he makes a sound with his lips as though a savory fruit were approaching them. The last paper is off. Finally the cover is lifted. There is an outcry of joy. My tippet! My menagerie! Like my muff, my dear husband! With a real shepherd on wheels! Dear papa, how I love you! They hug me, four arms at once, wind round and press me close. I am stirred. A tear comes to my eyes. Two come to those of my wife, and Baby, who loses his head, utters a sob as he kisses my hand. How absurd, you will say. I don't know whether it is absurd or not, but it is charming, I promise you. After all, does not sorrow wring tears enough from us to make up for the solitary one which joy may call forth? Life is less happy when one chances it alone, and when the heart is empty the way seems long. It is so good to feel oneself loved, to hear the regular steps of one's fellow-travellers beside one, and to think, they are there, our three hearts be together." and once a year, when the great clock strikes the first of January, to sit down beside the way with hands clasped together, and eyes fixed upon the dusty, unknown road stretching on to the horizon, and to embrace and say, We will always love each other, my dear ones. You depend upon me, and I on you. Let us trust and keep straight on. And that is how I explain that we weep a little in looking at a tippet and opening a menagerie. Translated by Jane G. Cook for A Library of the World's Best Literature Selection Their Last Excursion From Making an Omelette by Gustav Droz From Lippincott's Magazine, 1871 Copyrighted in this strange, rude interior, how refined and delicate Louise looked, with all her dainty appointments of long, undressed kid gloves, jaunty boots, and looped-up petticoat. While I talked to the woodcutters, she shielded her face from the fire with her hands, and kept her eye on the butter beginning to sing in the pan. Suddenly she rose, and taking the pan handle from the old woman, said, "'Let me help you make the omelette, will you?' The good woman let go with a smile, and Louise found herself alone, in the attitude of a fisherman who has just had a nibble. She stood in the full light of the fire, her eyes fixed on the melted butter, her arms tense with effort. She was biting her lips, probably in order to increase her strength. "'It's rather hard on Madame's little hands,' said the old man. "'I bet it's the first time you ever made an omelette in a woodcutter's hut.' "'Isn't it, my young lady?' Louise nodded yes, without turning her eyes from the omelette. "'The eggs! The eggs!' she suddenly exclaimed, with such a look of uneasiness that we all burst out laughing. "'Hurry with the eggs! The butter is all puffing up! Be quick, or I can't answer for the consequences!' The old woman beat the eggs energetically. 
"'The herbs!' cried the old man. "'The lard and salt!' cried the young ones. And they all set to work chopping, cutting, piling up, while Louise, stamping with excitement, called out, "'Make haste! Make haste!' Then there was a tremendous bubbling in the pan, and the great work began. We were all round the fire, gazing with an anxious interest inspired by our all having had a finger in the pie. The old woman, on her knees beside a large dish, slipped a knife under the edge of the omelette, which was turning a fine brown. "'Now, madame, you've only got to turn it over,' she said. "'Just one little quick blow,' suggested the old man. "'Mustn't be violent,' counseled the young one. "'All at once. Tip with it, dear,' I said. "'If you all talk at once—' "'Make haste, madame. "'If you all talk at once, I never shall manage it. "'It is too awfully heavy. "'One quick little blow. "'But I can't. It's going over. "'Oh, gracious!' "'In the heat of action, her hood had fallen off. "'Her cheeks were like a peach.' Her eyes shone, and though she lamented her fate, she burst into peals of laughter. At last, by a supreme effort, the pan moved, and the omelette rolled over, somewhat heavily, I confess, into the large dish which the old woman was holding. Never did an omelette look better. "'I am sure the young lady's arms must be tired,' said the old man, as he began cutting a round loaf into enormous slices. "'Oh, no, not so very,' my wife answered with a merry laugh. "'Only I am crazy to taste my—our omelette.' We had seated ourselves round the table. When we had eaten and drunk with the good souls, we rose and made ready to go home. The sun had set, and the whole family came out of the cabin to see us off and say good-night. "'Don't you want my son to go with you?' the old woman called after us. It was growing dark and chilly under the trees, and we gradually quickened our pace. "'Those are happy people,' said Louise. "'We will come some morning and breakfast with them, shan't we? "'We can put the baby in one of the donkey panniers, and in the other a large pasty and a bottle of wine. "'You are not afraid of losing your way, George?' "'No, dear, no fear of that. "'A pasty and a bottle of wine. "'What is that?' "'Nothing. The stump of a tree.' "'The stump of a tree. The stump of a tree,' she muttered. "'Don't you hear something behind us?' "'It is only the wind in the leaves, or the breaking of a dead branch. "'He is fortunate who, at night, in the heart of a forest, "'feels as calm as at his own fireside. "'You do not tremble, but you feel the silence.' involuntarily you look for eyes peering out of the darkness and you try to define the confused forms appearing and changing every minute something breaks and sounds beneath your tread and if you stop you hear the distant melancholy howl of your watchdog the scream of an owl and other noises far and near not so easily explained a sense of strangeness surrounds you and weighs you down if you are alone, you walk faster. If there are two of you, you draw close to your companion. My wife clung to my arm. Let us turn woodcutters. We could build a pretty little hut, simple but nice enough. I would have curtains to the windows and a carpet, and put my piano in one corner. She spoke very low, and occasionally I felt my hand tremble on her arm. 
"'You would soon get enough of that, dearest. "'It isn't fair to say so.' "'And in another minute she went on, "'You think I don't love you, you and our boy? "'Oh, yes, dear, I love you. "'Yes, yes, yes. "'The happiness that comes every day can't be expressed. "'We live on it, so we don't think of it. "'Like our daily bread. "'Who thinks of that?' but when you are thinking of yourself, when you put your head down and really think, then you say, I am ungrateful, for I am happy and I give no thanks for it. Or when we are alone together, and walking arm in arm now, at this very moment, not that I mean only this moment, I love you, I love you. She put her head down on my arm and pressed it earnestly. Oh, she said, if I were to lose you. She spoke very low, as if afraid. What had frightened her? The darkness and the forest, or her own words? She went on. I have often and often dreamed that I was saying goodbye to you. You both cried, and I pressed you so close to my heart that there was only one of us. It was a nightmare, you know, but I don't mind it, for it showed me that my life was in your lives, dear. "'What is that cracking noise? "'Didn't you see something just in front of us?' "'I answered her by taking her in my arms "'and folding her to my heart. "'We walked on, but it was impossible to go on talking. "'Every now and then she would stop and say, "'Hush! Hark! No, it is nothing. "'At last we saw ahead of us a little light, "'now visible, now hidden by a tree. "'It was the lamp set for us in our parlour window.' We crossed the stile and were at home. It was high time, for we were wet through. I brought a huge log, and when the fire had blazed up, we sat down in the great chimney-place. The poor girl was shivering. I took off her boots and held her feet to the fire, screening them with my hands. "'Thanks, dear George, thanks,' she said, leaning on my shoulder and looking at me so tenderly that I felt almost ready to cry." "'What were you saying to me in that horrid wood, my darling?' I asked her, when she was better. "'You are thinking about that? I was frightened, that is all. And when you are frightened you see ghosts. We shall be woodcutters, shan't we?' And kissing me with a laugh, she replied, "'It is bedtime, Jean of the Woods.' I well remember that walk, for it was our last. Often and often since, at sunset, on a dark day, I have been over the same ground. Often and often I have stopped where she stood, and stooped and pulled aside the fern, seeking to find, poor fool that I am, the traces of her vanished footsteps. And I have often halted in the clearing under the birches which rained down on us, and there, in the shadow, I have fancied I caught the flutter of her dress. I have thought I heard her startled note of fright, and on my way home at night, at every step, I have found a recollection of her in the distant barking and the breaking branches, as in the trembling of her hand on my arm and the kiss which I gave her. Once I went into the wood-hut. I saw it all as before, the family, the smoky interior, the little bench on which we sat, and I asked for something to drink, that I might see the glass her lips had touched. "'The little lady who makes such good omelettes, she isn't sick for sure?' asked the old woman. 
Probably she saw the tears in my eyes, for she said no more, and I came away. And so it is that, except in my heart where she lives and is, all that was my darling grows faint and dark and dim. It is the law of life, but it is a cruel law. Even my poor child is learning to forget. And when I say to him most unwillingly, Baby dear, do you remember how your mother did this or that? He answers, Yes. But I see, alas, that he too is ceasing to remember. Translation of Agnes Irwin End of Section 20 Gustav Droz